Hello again, everybody, and welcome to this very special episode of the Team Blaney Podcast. My name is Adam Rogers, and alongside me is co-host Steve Mez. Now, if you're not familiar with us, the Team Blaney Podcast is brought to you by fans for fans. Steve and I have been diehard followers of the Blaney Racing family for about two decades. Today, we closely follow third-generation driver Ryan Blaney, who pilots the number 12 Ford Mustang for Team Penske on the NASCAR Cup Series circuit. Typically, each week on the podcast, we will review Ryan's latest NASCAR Cup Series race and then preview the race for the upcoming weekend, offering news, notes, statistics, and analysis. But this week, we were off from racing due to the Easter holiday, so Steve and I kind of put our heads together and decided that this would be the perfect time for us to bring on our very first guest to the Team Blaney podcast, and I think it's one that everyone out there that is a Blaney fan, that is a Team Penske fan, that is a racing fan would enjoy. So Steve, I think it's the perfect time for us to welcome Josh Williams, the spotter for Ryan Blaney and the number 12 team to the Team Blaney podcast. Josh, we're very excited to welcome you to the show. Thank you again for coming on to talk to us. Happy to be here. I've been I've been listening for a few weeks now and it's been fun to listen to, so I'm glad to contribute a little bit. Steve's been reaching out to you, talking to you a little bit, chatting you up, and we were really hoping that you're pretty much our first guest that we've had. We've really only had 10 episodes at this point, but the response has been great. So Blaney fans are great. So like I said, really appreciate it. We're just talking a little bit about your story. You have a really, really interesting story that kind of led to, pun definitely intended, your ascent to the spotter stand at this point (laughs) in NASCAR. But I mean, really, all of your story just centers on uh, Martinsville in the Martinsville area and, and growing up there basically in the shadow of that racetrack. Um, so talk a little bit about your, your, your family history and really what got everyone uh, involved in racing. Yeah. So obviously way before I was ever born, my grandfather was a general manager at Martin Speedway. Um, he retired in 99, 2000. He did it for 24 years. So mid seventies is when he started, I guess wow. my math's right. Um, so my grandfather was general manager there, and my dad pretty much grew up hanging out with Clay Campbell that owns it now and riding bikes around the racetrack and playing around the racetrack when all the events were going on and all that. So family just grew up there. Um, my grandparents still live actually right near the Speedway. So when my dad was – my dad met Dale Sr. from all that of interaction of being around the racetrack. He actually was supposed to have a hernia operation one day and skipped it to go to the <laughs> – Del Senior testing at the racetrack. So that's how he met Del Senior. He snuck in down there for the test session. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of how they all met. And then later on, my dad ended up working for Del Senior uh, about a year before I was born. So my whole life has been surrounded around racing and Martinsville a lot. Um, my dad did all the merchandising and souvenirs trailers for Del Senior. So that was kind of their connection of how they got together. Um, and from that, I just grew up around the racetracks, grew up at Souvenir trailers during the summer, riding down the road with my parents and playing with matchbox cars and burning the wheels off of those things and actually selling stuff on the souvenir trailers up until I started uh, started spotting and playing pro golf out of high school. The pro golf thing, I'm, I'm interested in that too because, like, how did you get – How did I mean, you play in high school. Do you just start hitting the ball so far that nobody else can see where it landed and then you end up playing – I mean, how do you get from that to pro golf? Yeah, so – being a pro golfer is really unique where basically if you say you're a pro golfer, you're a pro golfer. You go and enter in a pro tournament and when you make money, you're a pro golfer. So out of high school, I went to community college there in Martinsville for a little while and they didn't really have a golf team. So if I was going to do anything with golf, it was, I'm going to play pro and try to make money at it. So basically you're like, all right, I'm a pro golfer. And you start showing up at these mini tour events, which is 
basically a late model series of golf, right? And you start showing up to those and trying to make, make money at it and playing. And I did okay with that and moved up to ranks for a while. But then same thing with everything. You need sponsors for how much travel it is. You need money. You need, you need, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You need a certain stature to get there. Like you need some, some credibility. Mm-hmm. And there's so many people doing it, it's hard to actually make it to the, to the levels that you make money at. A lot of it's just getting by. So I actually got to a point, I was playing golf and actually giving a lot of lessons to drivers, um, golf lessons, just because I knew so many people through my dad. Um, and I met Scott Speed that way, which I met him in 08, 09, right at the end of his Red Bull days. And he basically asked me, like, you want to come spot for me when he was doing, like, starting part cars. Um, he was like, do you want to come spot for me? So on Saturdays when we're not actually doing anything during Xfinity races, basically we'll go play golf and I'll pay you. So I'm like, sweet, like I can spot and make some money and then do golf lessons and make money and then still try to play golf every once in a while during the week. Mm-hmm. And that led into I'm wasting all the money I'm making still trying to play golf. So let's just, let's just spot all the time. Yeah. So in 2011, I started spotting full time. Wow. What was the lowest round you ever shot? Um, 61 was my lowest in a tournament. Mm-hmm. My home course I grew up on was fairly short. And if you play good out there, you could shoot 60, 65 pretty easy. I think the lowest I ever shot just playing was a 60. But mm-hmm. I shot 61 in our club championship, and I shot 28 on the back nine to win. <laughs> that's that's amazing to me because, like, I mean, I'm a bogey golfer at best. And uh, if I birdie a hole, it's the most exciting thing for two weeks, you know. And Tell uh, everybody. talk to guys – yeah, the talk to guys who are pros. There was a guy I used to work with. He was retired. He he tried to be a pro when he, in in the, the mid seventies, and he had to go to the Monday qualifiers, you know, mm-hmm. to try and qualify for the next week. And every once in a while, he'd make it and he'd play and he'd finish. He'd make the cut maybe and finish low on the you know, way down on the leaderboard. And he did that for a couple of years, just struggling. But that guy was still shooting, like. You know, if he came home to town, he would shoot 62, 63 against all the locals and take all their money away from them. You know, it's a really hard thing. People don't realize how hard it is to actually, you know, get that shot. Yeah, it's very difficult. And I tell people that today, like, I still play a lot. And I still, if I have a good day, I can shoot 65, 67. And they're like, oh, like, you're really good. And I'm like, well, if I was that good, I wouldn't be spotting and playing with you on Wednesday. (laughs) Like, I would be out playing professionally, so. It's a, it's a different level. Like some days you feel like you have the ability to do it, but you have to be that way every single day. It's a, it's a lot of work and it's, it's a whole different level to be that next level up to be on TV. It translates though, to what you're doing now though. There's a certain discipline to it that you, I'm sure you're using now. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think the main thing is mentality, like being in it for three or four hours, um, attitude, like where you're, where your emotions are golf is such an emotional sport and it's it's only you there in your head so it's hard to it's easy to get off in the left field and and spin yourself out mentally so i think that's a big thing from my standpoint i feel like i'm fairly calm you know half the time <laughs> i feel like i'm fairly calm and i think that is where that came from is understanding from golf like when i get high if i get low like that's not helping me perform and i think that's a lot of i try to even put that through on the radio like i try to try to have that mindset to everybody else. That's, that was one of my questions later, actually, is that mentality of, of patience that you seem to have. Um, 
<laughs> I've been you you know you've listened to a couple of our episodes here. We've I've been listening to you for four or five years now. You yeah, know, I've been listening um, even before NASCAR had NASCAR uh, their their spotter thing on NASCAR. They had that um, what they used to call it, track pass or whatever they used to call it with the, with the cartoon screen that you could watch and, and everything else. Yeah. And, and that's the one thing that I was really impressed with is each time I listen to you, there's this patience and like, no matter how chaotic it looks out on TV, there's just this calmness. of so middle of three, middle of four, <laughs> middle of five. And it wasn't even, you know, your pitch didn't go up and nothing like, you know, there was no scared. You weren't scared of nothing. And it made yeah. me feel, it made me feel good. Like, okay, he's, he's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. You know? Yeah. And uh, well, it's, it's really uh, interesting that you can do that. There, there's one thing about being a spotter is when they crash, it don't hurt you from the spotter stand. So <laughs> it's, it's a little easier to be patient and calm because you're not the one that's going to get hurt when you crash it. So <laughs> it's not just kidding. That's like the story. That's a story that Dave's uh, Ryan's dad, Dave told it uh, at um, Talladega one time, his spotter, uh, there was the, one of the big ones, you know, and the spotter goes, go high, go high. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, last, I had a good luck moment last week when it was dusty. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that was, uh, that was chaos there. That was, that's a whole other thing. It was. How did you get from, how did you get from Scott Speed to Ryan? Um, you know, your experience, uh, you know, you, you, there were a couple of drivers in there. How'd you work your way that direction? Um, so I spotted for Scott Speed at the end of 2011 when I started, 2012 and 2013. Um, he went from doing Jay Whitney's number 46 cup car, which was what I first started with him. He moved over to Levine Family Racing in the 95. So at that time, they were just doing a part schedule. Like the first year was only 10 or 12 races. It was really small. Um, but through spotting for Scott, I met some of his buddies. Um, I met AJ Allmendinger actually. So me and AJ became golf buddies. We played during the week. And in 2014, Scott had left LFR, which is a 95 car, and Michael McDowell was there. Um, me and McDowell had a good relationship, but we didn't really know each other personally away from, from spotting. And they were still doing a part-time schedule. They were doing more, but it was only, I want to say it was like 23, 25 races. Um, and then half of those were really starting parks in any race every week. Um, so I did that, and halfway through the year, AJ Spotter left um, David Green. He left to go work at NASCAR as a as a uh, inspector, safety inspector. And when he left, AJ asked me if I would like to try out the spot. And it was our first race was Kentucky, so whatever that was back then, June or July, middle of the year. And I was like, yeah, but it's kind of hard in the like, middle of the year. How does this going to affect um, the 95 car? Like, how can I do that? So I went and talked to Bob Levine that owns the 95 and told him, like, hey, AJ asked me to spot. Like, how do you feel about it? And he's like, crazy if you don't try to do it. Like, full-time car, like, at that time, they were running pretty well. So it's, like, really good opportunity. Like, go do it, see how it works out. If it works out, like, all the best. Like, good luck. So I went to Kentucky with AJ, spotted for him. We ran pretty well that night, like 10th to 15th, which is a pretty decent day for them. And AJ basically asked me if I wanted to do it full-time so i'm like yeah it's awesome a full-time car pretty competitive from what i'm used to like great opportunity so ended up leaving 95 and starting for aj the rest of the year which was ironically enough the half of the year that he won his race at Watkins yeah. Glen. so i think that was our fifth or sixth race together we won mm -hmm. so that was a cool little moment um 
So it was, it was pretty much a week-to-week basis. I was the only spotter, but it wasn't it wasn't like a long-term contract or anything. It was get through the rest of the year. And halfway through that, I got approached from an employee at Penske if I would be interested in maybe making changes at the end of the year. So I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm still kind of new to this one. I don't know what you're, what you got available, but maybe. So I knew like it was like somebody was listening to me like on the radio and like there was people out there. So that was cool. Um, made it to the end of the year. And then a few weeks after the season, I'd say maybe two weeks, Ryan called. So, Hey, like what's your plans for next year? Like, what do you have? This is what I'm going to do. You want to like sit down and get lunch. I mean, they went and had lunch and ate for about an hour and just talked about what the next few years looked like and what he was going to run and stuff like that. And a couple weeks after that, I had a meeting with Penske. Um, took a while to get through that process, but ended up in 15, started spotting for Ryan. So at that point, were you like, who is Ryan Blaney or who's this kid? Or did, were you following along enough to know in the what he did in the trucks and what he was kind of doing Xfinity part-time uh, to know um, this was, is a oppor- good opportunity? Yeah, so I was following along. Um, ironically enough, the week that I kind of got approached about what I'd be interested in making a change was the week he won the Xfinity race at Bristol in the uh, 22 car. So I had that intuition that was who maybe it's going to be because I know there are other spotters and they're probably in there for a while. So it was like that happened the week that I kind of got, it got brought up to me. So I'm like, Oh, cool. Sweet. So I kept up a lot more after that, but I didn't know him personally at all. Um, actually I knew Jeremy Bullens, which was crew chief and only Xfinity car at the time. And then was going to move up with Ryan to the 21 car the next year. I knew him fairly well. So we didn't ever talk about work, but I knew who he was because he actually, funny enough, he used to play pro golf too. He used to play some mini tour stuff when he would have time. Um, not very successfully, loved <laughs> to death, but, but he, he would try. He loves playing golf. We, we still play. And uh, we would play golf and do that kind of deal. So I knew him, and I think that that's kind of what got my foot in the door with Ryan. Is Jeremy already knew me and kind of who I was as a person at that time. Now, when, um, when, you, got, when you make a bond like that with a driver um, – like that little meeting you said you had for lunch. Are are you looking at that point to learn um, different things that they want compared to other drivers? I mean, is everybody different as far as what they want to hear from you? Um, everyone's different. Um, honestly, that meeting was more of just getting to know him personally, what what his goals were, what what he wanted from the next few years. Not even from a spotter. Uh, we didn't really get into a spotting conversation until a couple meetings after that. But it was just getting to know him, his personality, what he likes away from the track. Just At the end of the day, no matter how good a driver someone is, you still need to have a friendship with them. You need a different level of friendship to, to be in their ear all the time and, and have those conversations and and go to work with them every day. Right? I mean, it's like hiring anybody. Like, I feel like as a spotter, you're going to build those relationships as you do races. I mean, the first year, every week we were changing something, trying to just get acclimated with each other, what he likes, what he don't like. Um, stuff like that. So the meeting was more just kind of what was going to come next, like what his year is going to look like, what two, three years down the road was going to look like, what he likes to do away from away from the racetrack, um, just stuff like that. Just really getting to know him personally, telling him a little about my, my history too, like where I came from and what I like. So it was just getting to know each other really. So what would you say the style is that he likes? I'm, I've listened to you a few times. I know Steve has listened a lot. Some guys seem to like constant information, lap times all the time, who's around them, who's next, who's behind them. 
or is Ryan more of a just give him the information he needs? Yes. So I would say the best way to explain it is give him the information he needs and don't give him too much, but give it to him before he needs it. Like, I don't even know how to say that. So basically have the information ready when he needs it because he's going to ask for it gotcha. quickly. But don't give him over, don't overload him with information. He don't, like lap times, for the most part, they have them on their dash now. So he knows what he runs, and that's all you can really control. And he's so smart. Like, he knows when he's a tenth or two faster than somebody. Like, he'll tell me that after the race. Like, yeah, I was a couple tenths faster than this person, or we'll be running fourth, and he's telling me what somebody in tenth was running. And I'm like, okay, I didn't even know that. Like, I got lap times, I don't even know what's going on. So he definitely don't, he needs the information, he wants it, and I try to give as much as I can, but he doesn't like excess talking and overloaded information if it's not relevant. And there is some guys that just talk nonstop, but they'll say 10 things and the driver takes one or two out of it, where I'll try to say three or four things and he takes one or two out of it. So that's, I think that's still, I mean, that's realistically, that's his personality too, away from the track. He's pretty quiet and, and down to business. And that's kind of how he is in the car too. Like give the information he needs, but don't overload it with, extra nonsense yeah, i've noticed like um todd will talk to you sometimes is, is the, i don't know there are how many channels you guys are talking on but i noticed i hear him and then you relay it so i didn't realize like so there's sometimes he uh, todd talks to you to make sure you tell him something is that just like yeah. to make sure make sure there's not like a traffic problem basically on the radio it is yeah um so we have two channels most of the time if todd's talking to me it's on channel two Unless it's under caution or something, he may talk to all of us. Um, but normally, if it's on under green, he talks to me just on channel two, and it may be something that it may be something that's really important to tell Ryan, and it may be something just that I might tell him five or six laps down the road, just kind of depends on the situation. So um, there's definitely times that he'll he'll tell me like that was a good lap or whatever, and I don't. Sometimes it's, he wants to kind of know where he was running. Sometimes he wants to know tell Ryan because he changed something up. So like there's there's moments he'll tell me something and I never repeat it. There's other moments he tells me stuff, and I'm, like, immediately telling, like repeating it. So it's it's more of a filter probably just to get through me from him, and then mm -hmm. I use it if I think it's something that's that's usable for Ryan in that situation. Yeah, now, I kind of noticed – oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Adam. I was going to say, now, sometimes we, we talked a little bit earlier about how you're really calm. You sound really calm on the radio. But there are definitely times when the drivers, and not always necessarily Ryan, but have a moment or two – when the race isn't going their way or the handling is kind of going away in the car where they go off the handle or off the deep end a little bit. Do you see that as your job to kind of step in and try and calm him down? Or do you really let Todd kind of be the one that, that coaches him through some of those moments or do sometimes you just ignore it because you know, they're just venting. Yeah. I, I'm personally pretty aware when it's just venting and when it's something really wrong or if it's just venting and, and something else, I, I'm good at ignoring it unless I think it's affecting our race. And then I'll try to just, all right, calm down. Um, Todd's definitely the father figure with all of us. He's <laughs> yeah. When, when he speaks, we all listen. So, so we let him do the hard work. Um, most of the time it's just Vinny. And I, I compare it to a relationship that if you're in your house with your girlfriend all day and you're nagging and nagging and nagging and she's not having a good day, she's eventually going to tell you to shut up or go in a different room. <laughs> and that's the way I look at it. Like when things aren't going well or if they're not perfect and you're having a bad day and I'm up there talking nonstop and it's 
150 degrees in the car and somebody won't shut up in here, you eventually want them to shut up. <laughs> so it's, it's not a, it's definitely just a, you ignore it and you know it's not personal, it's just in the moment. So a lot of times drivers, of all other drivers will get mad and I just laugh on my, like I don't key up and laugh, but I just laugh it off. Like it's not personal. Just move on. Let's go. Well, that's the other thing is like, we're eavesdropping on your conversation during the race. And a lot of people don't hear what's said before the race and what's said after the race or in a meeting on Tuesday afternoon or anything yeah. else. So uh, we're catching part of the communication, but we're not catching all the communication. And sometimes I, I think people lose that sight of that, you know, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of communication going on, and there's a, a lot of what you will hear on the radio is just in the heat of the moment conversation of just being in the middle of, middle of battle, you know, and it's it's not personal. We're, we're laughing about it after the race. I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, too. Like, it's never it's never personal. It's just heat of the battle. And, and honestly, I, in a way, I like it because in a way it fires everybody back up and, like, Let's get the most out of it. Like I would be more upset if he didn't care enough to get upset. You know what I mean? Like I like that. It's almost a, you need that blow off valve to get reset and get back after it and not just let things happen. And, oh, well, I'm 20 today. I don't care. Like if he's second, he's mad. He's not first. And I, I love that about him. Like I love his passion and his fire. And that's part of the why I laugh it off because I know it's about to be, it's going to be better off after he lets it out. So normally it's just, all right. Through that yeah, well, I mean, like, um, just as example, you know, last week, you know, you have what you have happen, but what people don't see on, on TV, they didn't show it at all. But the last 50 laps, so the 16 spots were gained, and you did a super job of just guiding him up through, just guiding him up through. Here's the next one. Pick off the next one. We got to do this. He's running that line, you know, and just, you know, to pass 16 cars and 50 laps under those conditions in that situation, um, you know, that's an amazing amount of communication that you put through. I mean, mind you, he's the driver, but he's going to, you know, he gets all the glory, but you know, you did a great job, uh, you know, and what people might not have heard that happened just before, you know, but that was the thing. It fired everybody up and everybody went forward with it and, and, and did everything they could to get, you know, moving forward. So, yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of times you just got to hit, hit the reset button to get back in the moment. Um, I think that honestly kind of having that long break, we had that 10 minute break when they watered down the track and all that. Like that was a good reset moment. What I need to do for the last 50 and him understanding a little bit of the dirt racing with the track being watered down, it's going to be some grip up there compared to other people not really knowing what was, what to expect. And that was a lot of us getting through there was having two lanes to run to be able to do it, not getting stuck yeah. on the bottom. So he did an awesome job of, of finding grip and getting up on the wheel for the last 50 laps. We've got all the way to 10th from 24th, 25th. It was, I think. Yeah. Like we got all the way to 10th with, five or six to go just by passing cars. So I don't think that was probably the most anybody passed on a run all day. I was impressed with that. Now on the TV side, and they showed some in-car footage too, and obviously the, the wreck that Ryan was involved, if you saw any of the footage of that, it's, his windshield kind of looked like a big white sheet to where he couldn't see. What And on some of the shots uh, from like the blimp too, I mean, I'm used, like I said, I grew up at a dirt track, so I understand there's going to be dust. That didn't really phase me. But from the spotter stand, are you seeing just a big dust bowl or did you have a pretty decent uh, vantage point? Um, at that point, it was just a dust bowl. Couldn't see anything. Um, I compare it to flying in an airplane when you're flying over a cloudy day and you can okay. see bits and pieces of the city, but you have no city what you're looking at. <laughs> that was pretty much it. <laughs> so when we wrecked, I could see the back stretch in the three and that was about it. 
the rest of that was a reflection off a car and you just kind of see momentum if everybody's still carrying the same speed like if somebody wrecked you would obviously see them disappearing but when we wrecked like talking to ryan and talking to kyle spotter i think it was more of everybody knew there was people around but they didn't know what lane they were actually in like we knew kyle was underneath us but when i think it was stenhouse came back up we thought he was going to the wall and we were following him but he was still on the bottom so we just turned down thinking we were still going towards the wall because you couldn't see in front of you so it was, yeah. it's honestly fairly dangerous when it's dusty like that like i'm not a big fan of the dust i thought the dirt was cool but that middle part of the race when it got really dusty it's it's pretty sketchy like my main goal is safety and i didn't feel like i had a whole lot of presence of being safe there when i couldn't see things happening in front of us now you talk some about having to, the importance of building that relationship with ryan and you sort of already had a previous relationship with jeremy so going back to last year, I mean, it kind of stunned all of us, the big crew chief shakeup that happened at Penske. And now all of a sudden, you're not working with Jeremy anymore. You're working with Todd Gordon. I'm sure you guys knew each other um, just from the shop. But were you that familiar enough to where you guys could kind of just jump in and get that communication going? Or is that something that even a year later, you're still working on a little bit? Um, I feel like now we're pretty good. Like There's still moments that we work on things. Beginning of last year, kind of before – COVID deal hit and all that, and we all kind of got shut down for a little while. It was a lot of work and understanding every week. We had a meeting every week and a meeting before the season and every week trying to understand what happened and things to get better. And then we kind of got shut down, and then it was, well, we'll just learn on the fly. So it kind of set us back a little bit with communication to him. But I feel like we did it so much and so often last year. Like, it, it's pretty – it rolls pretty good now. So it's a little different. Um I really, really, really enjoy working with Todd. Like, he's very professional and very to the point, and you did good, but we can do better, that kind of thing, which I love. Like, I like being pushed. That came from, that came from golf. Um, and he's that way. Like, I mean, I, I could think of a moment at Talladega. So we won Talladega at the end of 19, and then we crew chief swapped at the beginning of 20. And one of the first meetings we had with Todd was, Josh, you could have done something better in Talladega. And I'm like, we won. How do you do something better than that? That's great. <laughs> and we sat down and watched some footage, and I'm like, you're right. And then we won the first Talladega race last year and literally play out word for word what me and Todd had talked about from our first meeting that was already going into Like, I'm taking the white, and I'm thinking exactly what Todd said, or maybe with Todd. So it's moments like that that it makes you better. And I feel Todd makes us all better. Um professionally, personally, everything. Like, Todd's a great leader. Um, there's moments that we have setbacks as a team, and he's still there to pick everybody up, and he's one of the big growths I've seen in Ryan, which I think has been awesome. Yeah, I mean, last year with, with the COVID situation and no practice and no qualifying and, and still doing some of that this year, um, is, is that uh, something that you miss? Is that something that you wish you had, uh, that, that extra time? to deal with everybody when it's going good no like we, we, when you're having good runs you want just to keep rolling and, and nobody else be able to catch up um when you're having bad weekends yeah you like you need to reset you want to practice and you want to just kind of reset and get that practice in and, and make your cars better so i think i don't totally miss practice um i think it's been it was exciting last year when they were doing inverts and stuff like that with who was going to be good like some guy could start 20th 
and drive right to the field and be awesome. Like I thought it made the first stages really good. Like they were fun to figure out who was good and stuff like that, where when you have practice, you know, the four or five cars, it's going to be the ones to beat as soon as you get there. Um, so I, I enjoyed, I probably enjoyed last year more the way the inverts were and random draws and stuff for qualifying from that standpoint. It just, who hit it? Like who showed up with the right stuff? I mean, I look at, Martinsville last year, the first race, we started second and went to 33rd and 50 laps. Like, we were digging backwards, like, not ideal. And then we drove right back up to the second or third and had a chance to win just from making adjustments. And not that that's fun, but that's exciting from the race standpoint of things happening and persevering and come through it and making yourself better. Like, I enjoyed that. So I don't totally miss practices and being there for three days <laughs> so speaking of that uh, adversity you guys had some adversity in that first round of the playoffs last year obviously with an early exit that kind of surprised some people though finished that season though extremely strong but then you come yeah. back out again uh 2021 short run in the daytona 500 unfortunately and then face some more adversity in those first few races did you know that that was just kind of a fluke that it was a little bit out of everyone's hands there. And that a couple more races in that Ryan would be, you guys would be in victory lane. Um, yeah. I mean, looking back at last year in the playoffs, we pretty much knew the first round of that was probably gonna be the most difficult for us. Yeah. And then we had a penalty and got damaged at Darlington, which cost us probably 10 spots and Richmond didn't run well. And then Bristol pretty much had to win. So it was Hail Mary at Bristol. Um, it just didn't work out. It just wasn't a good round for us, which is already going to be difficult. Um, beginning of this year, Daytona, you always feel confident. You know what you're doing, but things like that happen when we were there can happen. I mean, you get caught up in anything. Um, and then we went to the road course and ran mediocre. And then Homestead, we didn't run very well. Homestead was a little bit of a – I hope that's not going to be how it is. <laughs> hope we're going to find some different change. But we tried some things there that – from last year that just didn't work. So we kind of went back to what we do and Vegas was pretty good. Phoenix was pretty good until the second half of the race. And then Atlanta was obviously great, which to me, I knew that after Homestead that we could change some things around and be pretty good again. I didn't know we'd just go win, but I thought we'd be pretty good again. And then Homestead and Atlanta are pretty favorable racetracks with the old wore out surfaces and going from how we ran at Homestead to the way we ran Atlanta. Like that was a big confidence boost for everyone. Um, just knowing that you can make those adjustments and have that speed again. So I think that was, even if we didn't win Atlanta, that was a huge confidence booster for everyone to going forward. Yeah. It seemed like Todd was really, I mean, he does some weekly media obligations and some radio stuff every week. And for that first few races, he was really hard on himself. I know he mentioned, and I, I know this definitely affected the Stuart Haas team. Um, it's not really a rule change, but more rule enforcement with like the wheel wells of the cars and, and some other things that, um, I know that uh, on Harvick's side has said took, you know, several pounds of downforce off the car, these changes. So Todd's trying to figure out setups that could work in this new world and um, did seem eventually really turn the corner. And it's, it's really been good to see the team start performing up to the level that we know that everyone is really capable of. Yeah. I think, I think there's just some trial and error there of trying to find new ways. And you sit in, sit in the shop for three months in the off season, you get all these, ideas and how things are going to be and then you show up with it and it's like oh maybe not right but you're committed at that point when you only have a race you know so i think that was a lot of homestead just trying some new things that didn't really work out and we went back to what we knew and it's been good ever since so i don't 
I mean, the beginning of the year wasn't ideal, but realistically, we didn't run that bad. We just didn't finish well. I mean, Daytona was going to be okay. We finished way in the back. The road course, we finished 15th, but we didn't really have a great day. But that's, I mean, you're going to have those days. And then at Homestead, we were probably going to finish 10th to 15th, and we got fenced. So just we didn't finish where we were capable of those days anyway, so it's easy to snowball it. But I think we're, we're pretty close. So what are your favorite um, tracks to spot at? I mean, what are your favorite or which ones don't you like, basically, to, to, to spot? What um, I like them all. I, my favorites are going to be the plate tracks. That's where you feel like, as a spotter, you, you matter the most, and you're going to perform with the skills you have. That's where you're going to matter the most. So I love Daytona and Talladega. Um, to me, Daytona's really cool, just being the – the birthplace of NASCAR and everything there and all the new stadium they have there. So that's a really cool place. Um, I'd like to win there. So we've been close. Yeah. And then other than that, yeah. Other than that, uh, asphalt Bristol's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Martinsville. I love, I love Martinsville. I want to win there too. It'd be cool to win at home. Um, we've been close there too. So, yeah. um, the short tracks, are, they're fun. I mean, Bristol and Martinsville is where everybody's beating and banging, leaning on each other. You can see everything well. It happens very fast, but you can actually see it all. Those are cool. And then I love the play tracks. I just feel like feel like those as spotters, you you just have the most impact on performance. Right. Those um, are those are the ones where you're the busiest. Basically, you have to. Yeah. There's there's so much going on. It's always has to be constant information. Yeah, it is, and and I feel like we're pretty good at that. And I think it's shown some. Um, there's things we could do better, but I feel like those are the places when you win, like you actually feel like you helped at, you know I mean? If we go win a road course, like what did I say? <laughs> but, <laughs> but when, when in the play track, it's, it's a lot of your communication and your trust in each other and that kind of thing. And we've been lucky to win a few. So I think that's cool. Yeah. I will say at a play track, you're, you're anticipating the runs, you're looking for gaps. And, and I can tell by sometimes what you say, basically it gives him a choice. Like you tell him that there's a gap, high or low of some sort and he might pop up in there and give it a shot um just because he knows a run from a certain guy is coming and stuff like that so yeah i mean that's there's definitely like a lot it can tell a lot more of, the, of what you're saying at those points are, are things that he actually uses you know to make yeah. moves yeah those are the places that you talk as much as possible and let him just take out what he wants compared to other places um they're challenging um, there's a lot of stuff going on and i could talk for a whole lap and miss 10 things that i just don't have time to say and I had a conversation with somebody about that. Like, you talk a lot at play tracks. I'm like, yeah, but by the time I say something, three other things have happened. Like, I can't get it all out. <laughs> so you just, it's constant there, just trying to give everything. And, and like you said, like, there's moments that you try to coach him into going somewhere because you can see something happening. Mm-hmm. So what is the craziest thing that's happened to you as a spotter with any of your drivers? Um. I don't know. It's hard. So not many people know this, but in Daytona, after Ryan wrecked, I spotted for Cinder the rest of the race. So I was spotting for him when he wrecked on the last lap when it was that big ball of fire. Yeah. So that was a little that was a little sketchy. And it took him a it took him a few moments to key back up and say he was alright or anything. So that was that was probably the hold my breath moment. <laughs> um that was that was that was kinda eerie for a second. But there and then I think it was 2016 Ryan blew a right front at Dover and hit the wall and it knocked the breath out of him and we were all by ourselves I mean we had 
20 car length gap. And I was looking down at lap times and I heard him go like, Oh, and I'm like, what happened? I look up and he's wrecked. And I'm like, what happened? Like, I didn't know what happened. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was pretty scary too. So the moments when you're worried about safety is honestly like the most eerie feelings. Like you don't want, it's probably your biggest fear as a spotter if something happened. So you don't want, you don't want to be anywhere near that. Yeah. I would say, I remember the car being on fire at Charlotte the one year too. At the oh yeah. Years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were actually, sit- yeah, we were sitting <laughs> like basically right in front of it, and it's just yeah, yeah. Get- I remember that out. one because it blew up huge, and then I was trying to tell him where the safety truck was, and I told him way early, so he got out and there was nobody near him. <laughs> I was like, oh my bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a sketchy one too. That was a big fire. So we've talked about your your golf career and your spotting career, and then when we got into the pandemic last year, people got to know you as a race winning iRacing driver. Can you talk about how you got into iRacing in the first place and how you got even better at it to be able to win a race that had several pretty heavy hitters in it, I would say. Yeah. I've been iRacing since 2008. I think it was 2008, 2009. So I've been on it forever. Um, Never really take it that serious. Like it's a, to me, it's my PlayStation, you know, it's my PS5. It's fun. It's entertainment. Um, but I race on it a lot. I mean, I raced two races before I got on here with you guys. So um, almost every night if I'm home, I'll get on there. with. I got a friend group that's five or six of us. We're always jumping in some race and causing chaos and getting everybody mad and leaving. So that's what we do. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. It's, it's came a long way. That's been the coolest thing with me is the tracks are neat, but they've tried to make the cars all drive differently for, for what we're doing and they update the tracks and scan them. So it's cool to see all the content they add to it. Um, but yeah, that race last year was, it was cool. Um, we were about to head to Atlanta when they canceled everything. We were sitting on the plane and we all went home that evening and a couple guys texted like, Hey, what do you guys think about like just getting an iRacing race together to have something to do? And uh, I was like, sure. Why not? I'm going to race anyway. Might as well race you guys. And it turned into like, broadcasting it on Twitch with all these people and 100,000 people watching it and all this. And the next thing you know, it's like, well, I blew up. But um, a bunch of those guys, we race together every night anyway. So it's, I would say there was 30 guys in that race. The top five, we race we race a lot together. So we all kind of knew each other. And some of those guys never race, so they're not that good at it. But there's been a lot, of, a lot of people putting work in trying to get better since it's blown up so much lately. What's cool is that replacements race – I mean, I don't know if Fox and, and iRacing had anything else in the works prior to that, but it seems like people realized how many people actually tuned in on you know Twitch and wherever to to watch that race. That they're like, maybe this is is something legitimate that that we could actually broadcast on network yeah. TV. It all came from iRace, every bit of it. Um, so we raced, it blew up, and like that night, I'm doing like a serious interview because of the iRacing race and all this crazy stuff. And I actually played golf with one of the head guys at Fox. And he texted me the next day, like, what do you think if we, like, try to get drivers to do this? And, like, they were at first going to be, like, streaming on their app and, like, just kind of mm-hmm. just get a group together. And I'm like, sure. So, like, that whole next week I'm in production meetings with them trying to explain how iRacing works and how resets work and pit road rules and tire rules and how the tracks are. And it, it all came from my race, which was really neat. And um, that blew up. They put it on TV. It was really the only form of sport going on that you have some entertainment from a sport and uh it blew up last year and that's why they've already carried on to doing it this year they're gonna think they're gonna do 10 races total this year so they did the first one last week now ryan 
Brian has to come down and use your rig, though. Yeah, yeah, he comes <laughs> over. Yeah, he he still doesn't have good internet yet, huh? No, he still don't. I don't. I mean, he wins all these races and don't pay for internet. I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> he, he he was joking about that last year doing his podcasts, and at one point, it, it literally. He was in the front yard with an iPhone trying to do the podcast, and his dad came by, and his dad goes, Jimmy Johnson ain't in the front yard doing a podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was funny. Last week, he came over, and he got here, and he's like, man, I forgot my PlayStation. And I'm like, why? And he's like, I need to hook up to your Wi-Fi to update, do the updates. <laughs> he, for, he forgot. So he's got better cell service at his place now, but he don't have better uh, internet still. So... He shows up about an hour before those races start and asks me how the track is and how the setup is and what he should do. So yeah. there's not a there's not a big uh, amount of effort goes into those things. Now I've always played like the console games, like the Heat games that they've had recently, and I mean going all the way back to like NASCAR Racing 2003, which I know the iRacing folks were kind of big into that. Um, so I've built I just got a separate computer within the last couple of weeks, and I already had a fairly decent wheel, but not like a professional one. So it is addicting. I've only done dirt, um, but I'm slowly moving up. I think I'm up to like a class C license or something, but it is a little bit more. I mean, I've never driven a car, but it is a little more real, realistic, especially when you get a black flag for not coming out of the, the pits in the proper way or you, you could speed. I mean, I got disqualified at one point because I was trying to do a reset and then I sped <laughs> in the pit. So um, I haven't gotten to the NASCAR side of things yet, but it's definitely a, an addicting thing. And, you, I mean, most people probably don't know. I mean, I don't even know the the extent of it, but you did drive briefly some Allison legacy cars and go-karts and some other stuff. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah I did. Um, I ran go-karts for three or four years um, around Southern Virginia, North Carolina. And then I ran, so Allison Legacy Series used to have a charity, like Toys for Todd's weekend in Martinsville in December. And they would always have a race there. So I ran that twice. Um, remember the first year I did it, I think I was like 12 or 13. And like the night before my dad, like puts me in the passion or in the driver's seat of his pickup truck. And he's like, see if you can shift gears. I'm like, huh? I don't know how to drive a manual. <laughs> so burnt the clutch out of his pickup truck and backed it in the ditch. Cause I couldn't ever get to go forward. So we just backed up in the ditch. And then he's like, all right, you're going to race tomorrow. I'm like, race what? <laughs> so, cause those had a manual. So that's how he was trying to teach me. So I missed all the gears. And then once I got to speed, I was okay. And, um, I only ran two races in those, but I got up to like third and the leader spun out of Martinsville and he would hit the curb with rubber on the exhaust or whatever. And like had like a little like exhaust fire and I thought it was like the end of the world. So I like pulled in and jumped out real quick because I thought I was burning on the ground. <laughs> so have you uh, mentioned to Ryan yet that now you both have wins at Atlanta at this point? I, uh, I sent him a picture last week. So they gave us a trophy from our win and I had a trophy from my iRacing win. So I sent him a picture and I said two greater, like I did two than the greater than one sign. <laughs> Just irritate him a little bit, but this was, this was a little bit better stage, I guess. So we'll let him have it, but I was first. So we don't want to take up too much of your time, but um, at least one, one last question for me, your dad worked for Dale senior. And I know this is a Blaney podcast, but I think enough fans are interested. Your dad worked for Dale senior and you grew up around him a little bit. Do you have a favorite Dale Sr. memory that you could share with us? Absolutely. So we can go back to a little bit of the NASCAR 03, and back then it was NASCAR 93 video games, um, computer games. And 
I was seven or eight and found the flaw that if you're under yellow, you can spin out people and get positions. <laughs> so I'm like tiptoeing to use the gas and wrecking people under caution at Talladega. And I'm like 40th and I'm just dumping them under caution, driving up to there. And Dale got so mad at my, so he used to stay at my house in Martinsville. He used to, he has his motor home there. And we were in the house doing that. And he got so mad at my dad for not being mad at me for wrecking people that he <laughs> left, went to his motor home at like seven in the afternoon. Like, I'm not talking to you. Like he so, and like carry that on for like two years that he was mad about it. And not long ago, it was probably a year ago, my dad was talking to some of the iRacing people. And one of the iRacing guys was like, yeah, um, Dale was telling us a story about this kid that like wrecked people in their yellow back in the day. And he actually like got us to change our game. So you wouldn't get positions from that. So from the time I was seven, I wrecked somebody in a yellow and they changed the video game for it from back then to not go to wreck people in a yellow and get the spot. And I didn't even know that until last year. So uh, that was a good, there's, there's a ton of them, but that's a, that's a good one for here. So now you, you only got to worry about the safety rating on right on your safety rating on iRacing going down. <laughs> yeah, do yeah. Now. I, I think that already. So nothing safe about me on there. All right, Steve. Well, I mean, unless you have yeah. anything no, else, man, we... I just want to say thank you for coming on. Um, this uh, it, it's so nice how refreshing how um, outgoing you are and how uh, you know accessible you are to to do something like this. Um, we really appreciate it. Um, we should call this uh, middle of three. I think middle of three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just don't call it middle of four. I heard you say that earlier. And there's uh, no such thing as middle of four. Oh yeah, <laughs> no. You you said middle of five a couple weeks ago, and I was. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. was not happy with that, that is one. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'll have that. But as long as we come out of the other end, it's okay. That's it. I, I do want to thank you so much, though, for doing this. Um, and you can come on anytime. You want to tell us something, um, you know, tell the fans something, just just let us know. We'll even do a little pop-up thing here or there if you'd like. Anytime you want to come on and be our guest, uh, we'd love it. Yeah, no problem. I, I enjoy giving back and giving a little bit of my time to everyone. I enjoy all the things you guys tweet and your podcast. And I listen to them every week just to see, see everybody else's opinion. I like that. <laughs> like, I like confrontation. I like, I like what other people think from different views. It, it helps everybody actually. So it's pretty cool to, to listen. And I enjoy talking to you every chance. Anytime you ask me anything, I, I always try to respond and try to give them back. So anytime you want me, let me know. I was, I was, there were different things that I always want to ask, but I was like, I want to save it. I want to save it because I knew we were going to do this at some point. And I just wanted to save certain <laughs> questions because you know, the, there's so much information that you have to give. And, 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 and you know, I don't want you to hear the question a second or third time, you know, want yeah. to fresh. You uh-huh. know? I'm pretty much an open book. And like I told you, if there's something I can't say, I'll just BS my way through it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Josh. Well, we really appreciate you coming on. The podcast for sure. We wish uh, you, Ryan Blaney, Todd Gordon, the whole 12 team, best of luck and hoping that this is the year where uh, it's a multiple win season. And I think that's definitely, definitely possible. So until next time, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. Well, Steve, I don't know about you, but I think that our first foray into bringing a guest onto the show and doing more of an interview style podcast went really well. 
and I'm really looking forward to anybody else that we can line up as a guest in the future. But for now, I just want to thank everyone for tuning in to this episode of the Team Blaney Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about myself or co-host Steve, just please listen to our very first episode that dives deep into how we both became fans of the Blaney Racing family. If you'd like to interact with us a little bit, you can find Team Blaney on Twitter at Team Blaney and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Team Blaney. And then don't forget to download, rate, subscribe, everything to the Team Blaney podcast on the Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and pretty much every major podcasting app out there. We'd really appreciate it. And then once again, to close out the show, we want to remind you, very important to check out the Ryan Blaney Family Foundation. This organization was established in 2018, and it supports causes that have closely impacted the Blaney family, including the Alzheimer's Association and UPMC Sports Medicine. You can find out more about the foundation on its website, ryanblaneyfamilyfoundation.org, or on Twitter at rbfamfoundation, and then finally on facebook.com slash rbfamilyfoundation. Like we mentioned last week, they just finally launched the Blaney Bunch fan club, and you can be a part of that. You can sign up now, find all that information again on their website, ryanblaneyfamilyfoundation.org, or on their vast uh, network there of social media accounts. For my co-host Steve Mez, I'm Adam Rogers, and we'll catch you next time on the Team Blaney Podcast. Podcast.